it's not just an image. It, it means something. It signifies something, right? If you see a B, it means Bitcoin. If you see the diamond, it means Ethereum. Maybe if you see the, the flag or something, these images have symbols and they have like meaning behind them. So the idea of charging an image with symbolism and not just any symbolism that stirs emotive feelings, but that actually represents community, right? And so these like images, if you think through all the images you're surrounded with today that we take for granted, these images actually mean community. And they might even communicate very specific like narratives or stories. If you see an image of money printer go burr, I mean, you know what that means, right? That's you know something specific. And so an image of these things, you're not just looking at an ape, you're not just looking at a punk, you're, you're seeing something that means like, hey, there's value and rights and other fundamentals, but we're expressing it with a silly image, which, you know, to us moderns, that sounds silly. You're looking at this picture and saying that's ridiculous, but that, that was the history of the Renaissance. Welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast, the official podcast of Unstoppable Domains and the go-to place for everybody to learn about the latest innovations in Web3 NFTs, and the decentralized web. Join us each week to hear from experts, entrepreneurs, and the early stage investors that are building the future on the blockchain. Not only will this podcast help you understand why these emerging technologies are so important, but you'll also learn how you can become a pioneer in the metaverse. GMGM, GM. welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast. My name is Josh Gordon. I'm your host, and we've got a great conversation today with investor, entrepreneur, crypto historian, partner at Six Events, Josh Rosenthal. Thanks so much for joining, man. I appreciate you coming on today. I'm excited for this convo. No, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I'm excited for it for a number of different reasons as well. Yeah, I've, I've seen you on Bankless. I saw your talk at Permissionless Conference. And I find the perspective you bring to crypto and really bringing in like a historical element to it so interesting. My, my first Twitter thread that really went viral, and it's still my most viral Twitter thread to date, which unfortunately isn't the best way to do it, to have your first one set the bar way too high. But it was a, I was talking through art history and looking at the different periods over time and kind of pointing out how the, the period of NFTs, which I call digitalism, how important that was. And I really think like this marks a shift in how things are done from an art perspective, from a tech perspective. And your comparisons to the Renaissance really brought a lot of that back to me. And I, I like the way you talk about it. Oh, no, thanks so much. I mean, if you if you believe this historical thesis that that communities make history. It's not just means of production or great men with ideas, but it's actually communities, and they make history through means of tools of social coordination. And so that tends to be technical, and it really revolves around two things. It revolves around the exchange of value, so money, and then also the exchange of information, so communication, permissionless communication. Then if that actually, if those are the tools that communities use to make history, and in this Renaissance, we actually have on-chain rights through NFTs, then then we're not just talking about art and we're not just talking about money, but we're talking about a renaissance or a rebirth, a destruction and a recreation of you know, society at, at every level and every aspect. So yeah, it's definitely much bigger than than pixelated cats. <laughs> I'm I'm happy that's so I still got some work to do to convince my my parents about that, but we'll get there. Before we dive into the history side of things, can you start off, walk us through how you got into crypto and you know what series of events really led you to becoming so interested in this space? 
I was finishing up a PhD, um, had a Fulbright over to the Sorbonne's Applied School for Advanced Studies. It's like the Institute for Advanced Studies. It's kind of complex systems, and you're you're doing research, you know, me and history with, you know, certain scientists doing string theory over here, particle studies, economics, and it was very much kind of complex systems, interdisciplinary studies. I finished the degree, and rather than going into history, which... <laughs> There are a variety of reasons. You could kind of see the writing on the wall that that was a zero-sum game and the educational institutions might not be the best way to pursue education or career improvement or you know, acquisition of knowledge or application of knowledge. So I uh, made a hard shift, did a startup with a couple co-founders. And some of the things I was looking at were you know, qualitative journal entries, but they were also, also accounting. Like I was literally looking at you know, documents, you know, 1,000 years old, 500 years old, and these like, super permissioned archives where you literally have to have you know, letters of recommendations from institutions or departments of state to get into these things, right? Just a few people like in, you know, 100 years actually working with these documents. And that always, you know, I kept that in the back of my head, you know, looking at that. And so I had made a bit of software to kind of keep track of networks and to do some of those things. So we created a startup, sold it to an MIT spin out, took that to private equity, um, did that without venture capital, and then did another company kind of along those same lines. And sold that to a publicly traded company, vested out, took them back to private equity, and then uh, vested out in 17. And at that point, we were looking you know, for what to do in terms of maybe, maybe investing here or there. But we're based in Louisville, Kentucky. We're not, you know, we're not in New York. We're not in San Francisco. And so the classic traditional venture models definitely you know, favor those power curves instead of people along the long tail. And then crypto came on the scene. We started looking at it. And it's like, holy smokes, this literally looks like the transformation down to the documents, you know, the code. Um, we can get into some of the details. It looks very similar to what I was studying. So we went all in on crypto in 17 and, you know, kind of as LPs with Multicoin and CoinFund and Standard and Parify and other folks and then Hedge and VC and then doing direct deals ourselves, like super early with entrepreneurs, you know, in similar spaces. And then actually run the tech indexing and validating. And then had really been focused on how does crypto kind of unlock this, this bigger bucket of benefiting people who aren't just investing, but anyone turning their cost centers into revenue generators. And so we did this little space as a, as a bit of a case study on $250 running a helium node back then. And it was a drug den and then rehabilitated it into historical you know, mixed use space and what have you without coding. And, and so we've really been playing around with how crypto benefits your your everyday, you know, Joe and Jane as part of that stack that it's transforming at every level. And then the bankless guys who I love, I think it was, uh, it was Ryan and David Hoffman, he was saying, hey, I have some ideas, not unlike your thread, you know, this kind of looks like art, we're seeing some similar things here, maybe it's almost, you know, similar to Transformation the Renaissance. I chatted with him a little bit and said, yeah, it's actually very, very similar, much more so than you might think. And as a historian, usually you're trying to force facts into a narrative, right? All narratives are just heuristic. They're constructs. They're like models that you use to explain things. But with the crypto renaissance, it actually like emerged from the data, which was unbelievable. And the odd thing about it was the deeper I went, the, the more it held up. Um, and we can kind of get into that. But I guess that's the story in a nutshell. I always find it cool how the people who are the earlier you were building, just how you had that conviction and belief. And it sounds like your kind of conviction in, in crypto built over time, especially as you started diving into the history analogies to, with it, right? So, all right, let's 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 jump into the, the history side of things. And maybe it would be good to give an overview here into this crypto is the new renaissance idea that you're really uh, talking and writing about. I'd love to dive into some questions I have after listening to your recent talk. So I have a, which I think will follow the narrative that the story arc you want to paint. But before we get into it, 
hit us with why is crypto as big of a deal as the last renaissance was? I'll keep this super brief. There's like a two hour detailed, you know, deep dive with the bankless folks. And there's a 20, 30 minute keynote at Permissionless around that if you want those different layers. But I'm really looking forward to the Q&A around this. So crypto in a nutshell, <laughs> like if you if you think about, you know, the cataclysmic changes, the times society like radically transformed, right? Like we're always the victims of the moment. We always use our own experience to kind of judge how big something can get or the nature of the shift of the transformation. And so we might, you know, if we're older, we might kind of remember the internet. We might think about Web 2. You know, there's hedge funds that say, hey, this is a big deal. It's like, you know, 19th century technology, cars and telephones and what have you. But I actually think if you look at it through a historical lens, which, you know, most historians aren't really incentivized to look at current things. They kind of consider that current events. But if you if you suspend disbelief and you look at crypto as a historical trend, it, it matches a lot of things that we've seen re repeatedly. And one of the ways I always looked at history, one of the biggest transformations, there's a couple like long scale transformations in Western civilization, like Roman Empire to disillusionment to the Middle Ages building back up, and then the Renaissance that kind of unwound all of that, you know, hierarchical structure, hegemony, whatever you want to call it, and decentralized it. That was that was a massive change, you know, the most recent massive change 500 years ago, and it very much defines the world we're in today. We call it, you know, early modern studies, and we're in modernity, regardless of what postmoderns might think, like our structures are modern. That was a radical transformation. And when you look at crypto, it has a lot of similarities to that. And so these changes in history, what happened, I see, you know, history is a pendulum swinging back and forth. Maybe it just goes back and forth. Maybe it ratchets up thesis, antithesis, synthesis. But the basic idea is that you have periods of aggregation where power and resources are, you know, consolidated. Think of it as total addressable market. And then you have periods of kind of unwinding of that dissolution, decentralization, redistributization. And so at the end of the Middle Ages, that world was fundamentally hierarchical and it was fundamentally permissioned. And the threads I use as a historian to kind of, you can't look at everything at the same time. So I put on a couple of different lenses. I put on one lens around value and one lens around communication, then another lens around identity, which is kind of the sum of the two. And so with value, you know, your medieval world was hierarchical, value was concentrated in the hands of few. You actually didn't have rights to, to own certain things or to spend money as you might like to. And the same thing with communication, um, information, the idea to change this wouldn't have occurred to you. Information was you know, held in actual physical documents and those were protected. You had to go to a place like those archives I was talking about and have permission, like letters of introduction to get to it. You couldn't really have a spread of ideas. And then finally, identity um, you know, had largely been static. You know, you were a farmer, your parents, their parents, their parents, their parents, their parents, their parents, about four more sets of those. So it wouldn't have occurred to you to do anything else other than what you had known. And so one of the questions is what changed? And so the, the nature of the change was, like I was saying, really around communities. And they used two different types of technologies. And it was this ledger-based technology. The Renaissance means rebirth. And one of the key words they say is ad fontes or to the sources. They went back to the sources and rediscovered things, you know, painting and perspective, but also technology, accounting technology. And so they rediscovered something that had been used in North African communities. And Pliny talks about it. And it was this crazy idea of ledger-based accounting, which sounds obvious to your listeners. But, you know, previously, it would be central centralized reconciliation every single time you had a transaction. And they rediscovered this ledger-based accounting, which was like magic to them. It was like when they rediscovered the zero, right? It was like you could you 
you could have speed and liquidity and have a flourishing of financial fundamentals that we hadn't seen for hundreds of years. It meant debit and credit, and it increased velocity, and all sorts of magic happened around that. And then at the same time, there was also an, another technology around permissionless communication, which was the printing press. And the printing press, you know, we think of it it was radical in terms of it decentralized information where previously you never would have seen a document. It was handwritten and cost, you know, a year's salary or 10 years salary, depending upon where you were. Now you could see a document that costs, you know, the price of a chicken or a dinner and it spread ideas and the ideas weren't able to be controlled. You know, some people tried to KYC the printers and register them, but essentially you could set up a print shop in the back of a store and, you know, have a thousand, you know, documents and run around to a fair with them and spread it out. And so that was... The printing press was was radical. It was the birth of mass media, and it really communicated new ideas. And the magic behind that wasn't just that the ideas were interesting, but it was the idea that they were new. After a thousand years of stasis, it was the idea of something being new. And so that was those two things combined. And the thing that was printed mostly, we think about it in terms of like Gutenberg's Bible or long academic disputations, but that wasn't the case. They were really images. Most of the things printed were, you know, single pieces of paper, these big broadsheets or flugschriften, and they were copper etchings or wood cutting, which is a new technology. So the art, watch closely, was like endemic, baked into the technology, and people communicated through these images. And these images said, hey, the medieval hierarchical world was fundamentally illegitimate. This guy named Martin Luther, who came along and had some philosophy and theology around it, made really good use of the printing press and basically said lots of those authority figures were illegitimate and just toppled that, that hierarchy. Around that, you had this unwinding and then a recreation at every fundamental level. And so people left the farms. They could start new businesses. There's a birth of capitalism, proto-mercantilism, however you want to describe it. And so a couple things happened in that that literally changed the nature of identity or forked you know, their identity or their reality. They said another thing was actually possible other than the thing that you're currently experiencing. So medieval you was just like you today, you know, fundamentally permissioned in terms of value and communication identity, but you didn't really know it. And then all of a sudden something like extraneous came in and said, hey, you're in this fishbowl. You can get out and hop in the sea and swim around. And it was radical. It toppled hierarchy. It forked, you know, power, political, economic. And the art was key to the movement, not just in terms of like, you know, Medici collecting different things to, you know, grossly, you know, buy their way into society. They literally used the art to communicate these messages. And even if you couldn't read, you could kind of read with your family and friends at a, at a pub or tavern in this communal event and say, hey, there's this other alternative community, and we can build this from the ground up, um, which was which was radical. So it wasn't just that power was hierarchical. So too was what had not just monetary value, but worth in terms of culture. And so in that sense, there's like religious and there's non-religious, there's sacred and there's profane. And only this stuff was worth, you know, communicating through art. And Luther and these guys came along and said, no, no, all this reality you didn't have to be off in a monastery. You could work with your friends and your family in a community. And that was good. And it had meaning. And you could, you could do that, like doing a good job in the society, in this world. And so that was, that was fundamentally transformative, partially because it wasn't just better technology, it was decentralized technology, which meant you couldn't stamp it down. So it's one of their key thing to keep in mind. There, there were a variety of renaissances before the last one, and they'd pop up, they'd bubble, they'd simmer for a little bit, and then they were smashed down because they didn't use decentralized technology. 
the last one was so successful that it eclipsed all the others. So we just kind of remember that. When we say the word Renaissance, we think back, you know, 15th century Italy, blah, blah, blah. And so when I look at crypto, I say, okay, we see very similar things. We see a radical transformation of how we communicate value in a decentralized way, right? Again, ledger-based technology down to the details, which is insane. And the same thing with communication. And so we think, because we're victims of our own age, that the internet is the printing press. That's not the case. That's kind of a false start or false fork. There's the promise of that. But because we didn't have value baked in, it ended up centralizing. And so now with Web3 or whatever you'd like to call it, um, we're actually having true decentralized communication. When you put these two things together, it's a repeat of the last renaissance. Just one last thing, and then I'll take a breath. If you play the story forward, um, you know, that was great. There's pluralism, creation, flourishing, reworking of society and culture at every conceivable level, military, economic, work, society, family, art, identity. And then over the next 500 years, you know, the pendulum of history kind of swings back and we start aggregating again, birth of the nation, state, consolidation, Bretton Woods, and we go up through here. And now we're essentially in the same medieval kind of hierarchical construct. And that may sound crazy, but I could take you on a a journey to show you how medieval you are without knowing it. Or you could just look at some of the some of the, the value concentration, if nothing else. And so now we're faced with these two new types of technology, which have been very slow, very chaotic, up and down, volatile. That's not a mark of them not working. That's how that's a leading indicator that they do tend to work. And so pulling those threads, value, communication, and now identity, um, I see v- very strong similarities. The exception in how they're different, though, is where when after the Renaissance, when things re-aggregated, one of the tools was, you know, identity, getting you to think in a certain way, particularly, but also rights, property rights. You could take your ledger with, you know, account counting and move that around. You could take a printed document and idea and move that around, but you couldn't take a piece of property around that remained physically static in a location. And so that was one of the tools that they used for re-aggregation. And so in this crypto renaissance, we have, you know, on-chain property rights, NFTs, not just as pixelated cats, but on-chain property rights for synthetic things and IRL things, which I think these aren't just ar- arithmetic. They're not like additive. They're hyperbolic. So, uh, so very bullish on that. That's the thesis in two minutes, if that's helpful. First of all, not a two-minute thesis. That's a 10-minute thesis, but I loved, I loved the whole thing. As a podcast host, there's this like fine balance between jumping in and, and letting, letting the guests really share their knowledge. And I was just listening to that, and that was great. If you're listening to that right now, you might need to rewind that back and listen to it again. That was really interesting, Josh. So I have so many questions. I kind of just need to start back at the top here. But oh, you mentioned so much. You talked about access ownership, status, and all those things in like the the Renaissance, the medieval time being like things that were being changed, access changed, access to what you could read, ownership changed, and your, your status around what you could be changed. And I see so many similarities as you were just, as you were just talking, just my brain was just thinking of all these different NFT examples, how NFTs give you access to new groups. And right now, what we see online, I mean, you tell me what you think. Like, are these initial takes of NFTs just pure experiments? But you mentioned at the beginning of the pod, like, it's not just another picture of a cat or another picture of a monkey. They're actually representing really significant changes in what can be. And these initial NFTs are actually just don't like don't get lost in the cartoon nature of them or the childlike, the toy-like aspect of the NFT because they really represent fundamental shifts in how communities and ownership and property rights can really be represented in society. So that's what I'm hearing from you when you you started talking through some of that. 
Yeah, yeah. Now, one way to think about it is, why did the last Renaissance succeed? It succeeded because it used this new technology, which is decentralized. And what do I mean by that? Well, they could share finance, but they could also share these ideas at a glimpse. And so most of the idea sharing and the ideas that said, hey, there's a possibility of something new that you haven't considered, and here's here's a, a blueprint for following that or for experimenting with it, was communicated in the form of an image. And an image, it's not just an image, it, it means something, it signifies something, right? If you see a B, it means Bitcoin. If you see the diamond, it means Ethereum. Maybe if you see the, the flag or something, these images have symbols and they have like meaning behind them. So the idea of charging an image with symbolism, and not just any symbolism that stirs emotive feelings, but that actually represents community, right? And so these like images, if you think through all the images you're surrounded with today that we take for granted, these images actually mean community. And they might even communicate very specific like narratives or stories. If you see an image of money printer go burr, I mean, you know what that means, right? That's you know something specific. And so an image of these things, you're not just looking at an ape, you're not just looking at a punk, you're, you're seeing something that means like, hey, there's value and rights and other fundamentals, but we're expressing it with a silly image, which, you know, to us moderns, that sounds silly. You're looking at this picture and saying that's ridiculous. But that that was the history of the Renaissance. When we think of the Renaissance, we think of, you know, Botticelli and Michelangelo and David and the Sistine Chapel. But that wasn't what transformed the society. That wasn't what medieval you would have seen. You would have seen something that looked very much like a cartoon character, right? Like on this woodcut, it would have been a block-based, you know, cut a piece of wood, stamp it, and print it. And it's very lowbrow. It's very, you know, it's very flat. And it's an image. It's almost like a logo. And that logo had, you know, amazing power behind it because it, it it was recreating the fundamentals of one's mental worldview. And we're doing the same thing today with the addition of not just recreating the fundamentals of one one's worldview, but that image isn't just semiotic in nature. It also has this mimetic or this value-based charge, as well as it actually serves a specific function. You can use it as collateral. You can use the object as right. So anytime you have complex systems with communities, you always have these objects of sociality that act as vectors for creation. But this time, it actually has value baked in. So at the last Renaissance, you had money, and money would allow you to go do the printing and what have you. And the images you saw in the printing, you know, it required capital, obviously. But it said, hey, the money system could split, politics could split, work could split. This time, you actually have the technology baked in it, not just at one layer like last time, but in both layers. So it's yeah, they're experiments and they're silly cartoons, but that's precisely that's precisely the stuff that tends to work out in history. It's, it's kind of counterintuitive, which gets to the other idea is that you know most people who are in the midst of these epic changes don't realize them at the time, right? Because like it's like ironic. It's 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 inversely related. The bigger the transformation, the less likely you are to realize it at the time. It's the schools of historians, one of which I like a lot. They think about it in terms of you know oceans, where you focus on the ripples because you're up here. Maybe there's some currents, but like these deep currents you don't see. And so you see the silly ripples, the pixelated cat. You don't see that it's actually tied to these functions and not just like technical functions, but these like identity functions as well, which are super powerful. Just a thought that stirred me as you were explaining all that is you were talking about these, how powerful these symbols are. And it's, it's something that I've definitely noticed in my time in crypto and maybe haven't really explained as much to my non-crypto friends or or even the listeners of this podcast as much like it's just something that i i recognize but i don't always think about but i'm surrounded by them in crypto and you talked about people couldn't read like literally not everyone could read back then and so instead of an article we had to show them symbols or a piece of art to convey these messages and now 
I almost feel like there is so much content, there's too much to read. I can't, I use Google Chrome as my browser and I use groups in my tabs. So I group my tabs by like work stuff. I have a whole research tab and it's closed right now and I just clicked it and it expanded all my tabs that I have to, like I literally have 35 plus articles that I've marked as, you gotta read this Josh, but I can't get to it. And so in a world where we do have the printing press and we're inundated with information, it seems like, are we almost reverting, you talk about that pendulum, are we reverting back to a world where we need to be able to convey ideas, information and symbols and, and signaling in a much more short form way to be able to sift through the noise that is web two? Man, that's that's graduate level stuff there. That's exactly right. Like literacy, <laughs> how do I want to take this? Um, so yeah, most people couldn't read at the time, right? Maybe 5% of the population. But literacy was like a spectrum. You could kind of make out some things. You could understand the images. Often they had these taglines, huge print that had these snappy little, you know, you can think about it like jingles and a commercial or like football or soccer, or like songs or what have you. Um, and so that would like stick in your mind, right? And what happened was there was an explosion of literacy for the first time. You go from, you know, people not reading to more people reading to an explosion of content, literally hundreds of thousands of these, you know, books and tracks and what have you. While that is true, and historians of literacy will look at that and they'll say, hey, look, literacy is taking off and expanding. But at the same time, the non-literate version of the printed material, the, the image base kind of, it, it acted almost as a secondary, as an organizing rubric for you to make sense of what you're trying to read. So it's not as if there's, you know, long form discourse here and images here. Historically, counterintuitively, they actually tend to work out together and reinforce one another. And that's the same thing we're seeing now. We have an explosion of, we've lowered the bar to create, you know, from monks writing on manuscripts and illuminating them to to printing, and now another expansion, you know, Web two, which we have some of that, but it's still kind of you know Fuji because you're still going through these centralized rails, and you may have to, if you don't do that, you need to be semi devish to be able to you know do some of the domain stuff, and now we're making it easier and easier and easier, so we're we're having an explosion, and I. I would predict that it's just the beginning. Like we think we've seen an information explosion, but we haven't yet. It's going to be, you know, another order of magnitude larger. And when you have more stuff, you actually have more of these images and like more of these like organizing rubrics in your head to like, you can only keep so much like stuff in your head at the same time. So having an image to make sense of it is actually more powerful. And then to your other point, yeah, we're surrounded with these images all the time. When it's stasis, when you're, when they're the traditional institutions, you tend not to notice them, right? And I don't mean institutions just like banking. I mean anything like hierarchical that we use for organizing because you're just, you're used to it and it's part of your identity. You don't even think about it, right? Like you just kind of scan over it. It's like white noise. But when there's something new that comes along and it's a new idea and you say, wait, what is that? And then it's associated with the image. It may cause you to think more carefully about that. Or when it's a new image that seems weird and odd and it's attached to a new idea or a new system that may cause you to think more about that. And that's what we're seeing with crypto, all the weird kind of memes and you know what have you in the images. That was the same thing that happened at the Renaissance. They thought to the power holders, the new art was lowbrow and lo-fi and they thought it was very weird and odd, partially because it was baked into the technology and it communicated certain things you know, against the power hierarchies of the time. And that's literally what we're seeing. You know, again, it looks new and odd and it can't just be a pixelated cat, but it's baked into the technology. And the power comes from two reasons. Like one, 
it's it's a function of community and identity and organizing. So that's like the the like somatic nature of the the charge. And then also, I actually and this is a bit of a hot take, but I, I think it bears out with like historical lenses on um, the technology actually has a generative power of its own, which is crazy. We talk about consensus, and that's great, like more power to everybody. But like the technology, it's like the you know the scientist in Jurassic Park, like life finds a way. The technology actually finds a way. The decentralized nature of the technology that creates a win-win like you know value you know, like reinforcing layers it actually tends to like work out and grow even if it doesn't have super majority or majority or even consensus to start and so these images do something to your mental world and to your like financial fundamentals at the same time and those two things like create a virtual loop a virtuous cycle so that help that's a lot to throw at you i didn't know how higher <laughs> i go no, I, I love it. We've talked about this like low brow art a couple of times and how you see these cycles happen almost exactly as through your research, right? Does that make, and this was not a question I plan on asking, but I just, I'm curious now, does that make the CryptoPunks, it's that, that pixelated NFT and a lot of people refer to it as one of like the OG pieces of NFT art and like PFP collection and it's generative. Does that just make the CryptoPunk that much more historically significant? Like, do you think we'll be looking back at that collection as, I mean, it's pixelated, it's it's lowbrow, but yet it conveys so much and it is one of the first. We can go into like some of the philosophy uh, uh, like around this too. Like just from a historical perspective, people always, like when you teach stuff to undergrads, you always say, hey, there's like a spectrum and there's lowbrow here and there's highbrow here. And people think it's like zero sum. So you're either over here or you're over here on the spectrum. That's not the way it works. When you have a renaissance or a regenesis or recreation, like you tend to have an explosion of everything at every level. So you have you have an explosion of lowbrow, lo-fi things, right? And those are unbelievable and those have like meaning and power in them. So you're kind of dis associating the image is it pretty do i aesthetically like it from like the meaning and its function and then at the same time you can have a highbrow function like a an arvr which is what the renaissance is known for i'm just concentrating on this other side of it because most people don't think of the lowbrow side but the highbrow side was exploding in a positive way at the same time too this is this is what you think of in terms of perspective and like oil realism like to the medievals like prior to the renaissance art was 2d it was flat it was symbolic it didn't look real and so the renaissance did two things the way you usually teach it is, oh, it made it look hyper real. It was fantastic. You had this realism in there. It was like their AR or VR when you're looking at Michelangelo at the time, right? It, it showed them different worlds are possible. It was almost a synthetic world, like the beginning of like, you know, synthetic, call it metaverse or what have you, um, if you want to like use those terms. And then at the same time, you had a lowbrow, lo-fi version of it, which had very similar form, like very similar function, but a markedly different form. And those two things mutually reinforced one another. It was wasn't one at the expense of the other. And so what happened with the Renaissance, it wasn't that everything was 2D and flat, and then in the Renaissance, everything got like glorious and awesome, and you could kind of see what was going on in, in the, the art. It was blowing your mind. Like we think of AI or on-chain, like providence or creation or co-generation, blah, blah, blah. It was that that was true, but the way you got into that was like through these 2D lo-fi things. So people would exist and like participate at multiple levels. They'd ex participate at the highbrow level and also at the lowbrow level. It wasn't as if you're in one or another. And so the Renaissance was a recreation of not just you know, vertical buckets, finance, military, work, et cetera, et cetera. Also horizontal strata on there. It was an explosion of lowbrow. It was an explosion of highbrow. Partially because it was a recreation of what meaning was at every at every conceivable strata as well as vertical. Man, that's a lot to throw. That's a good question. I, I, that's we could we could take that in like a host of different directions. Yeah. 
Well, I don't know. I might need to start texting some friends and put together uh, an investment group to buy a CryptoPunk right now because the more we're talking about it, the more I feel like I need one because we're going to be looking back in X amount of years, whether it's I don't know, next year or 10 years or 500 years. And how much would you value one of those new, one of those early day Renaissance paintings? The historical significance is probably the same for CryptoPunk. So pretty cool to talk about when you when you start comparing them. Okay, well, let's transition to the printing press, though. You said a lot of really cool things about the printing press. And, and, you know, one thing that made my ear perk up was you said a lot of people thought like Web2 or the Internet is the reinvention of the printing press. But you said it's not. It's really what we're doing in Web3. And I'd, I'd like you to dive a little bit more into into that. Sure, sure. And this kind of gets back into like the idea of how history works. It's not as if there's one thing and then bam, there's another thing. That that tends not to be how it works. You tend to have these little false starts historically, right? There are a lot of different renaissances. There's a lot of like people working in different value, trying to recreate their society, doing different things of art, da 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 da. da. You have these false starts basically, right? And then the last one that eclipsed all the others was successful because it used a decentralized form of all those other things that meant it couldn't be stamped out and the technology intersecting with community had a generative function. And so you would have had kind of centralized false starts in different aspects of the last Renaissance, right? So maybe that sounds familiar if we're in middle ages right now and we've seen like, we've seen like fault centralized false starts where there's potential to do things, but doesn't quite play out like we had hoped it would, and it ends up just kind of working into the system where it actually generates more for the medieval lords rather than for the farmers in the fields, right? Like that's that's kind of the the way you can look at the internet as a as a potential, but because it wasn't decentralized in terms of value accrual and like permissionless nature of the communication, it did amazing things. But I think that's small potatoes compared to compared to what we'll see. And specifically around that, like you can look at like some so some real specific examples of like that. Everyone will point to the internet and say, hey, you can do these new business models, you can which tend to be advertising because you know ownership is stripped away from that. Or you can you can work remotely and all these things are true. Um, and you can have these different changes at like societal levels, like political, maybe it's Arab Spring, da 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 da. It's like in that example, that won't happen again. Like that now that that happened, like regimes are giving lessons to one another how to cut the broadcast layer in the cord, right? Like there's a broadcast layer to Web3 and that can be cut. But now we're starting to see for the first time with Web3 distributed broadcast with different systems like little nodes, distributed VPNs and things like that. And then the same thing like with domain and and DNS and uh, and ENS and unstoppable domains and a whole host of people doing this. Like when you take the weak form, the centralized version of it, and it hasn't quite worked out like we wanted to, or even though we look at it and we say, oh, it has massive adoption, it's still nothing compared to what it could have been or what it would be in the what it will be in the future. Like using the the decentralized nature as a form of the same technology, like that's a more historically appropriate analog than the printing press. The printing press wasn't centralized by four networks that dominated 90% of the printed traffic. That wasn't the way it worked. It was geographically diverse and people actually had ownership in those different assets and the printing pieces. And so if I compare it to the internet, I say this smells much more, or it looks much more like a false like an early start. And part of that's just like our point in the the historical clock, right? Like we just happen to be born where we see the internet and we say, wow. But if you take a step back, you say, mm, that's like 40 years maybe. And you've really only had adoption like at scale for 30 years. You've really only had new business models for 20. That's like, that's like that, like historically in terms of epoch that like really reads like a little false start. And so like now when we see crypto, not just changing value, but change like allowing us to change communication at a technical level, 
and then weave in value with communication, that strikes me as like something that uh, is much more akin to what we saw with the printing press meeting ledger-based finance in the Renaissance. And then, of course, now we have ownership in that same piece, which is just like plutonium. That's something we have never seen before. So I don't know. If, does that make sense? It, it, do, it does make sense. I mean, something... Something I'm trying to figure out with the printing press, and maybe it's just because I don't know enough about it, is like, would anyone try to argue that the printing press was more decentralized than like the current version of the internet? And I just ask that because like, yes, we can all post articles on on Medium. We can all share posts on Facebook and Twitter. But you've mentioned a couple of times, like it is coming through those central rails. Like there's probably, I don't know, there's, I'm just throwing out a number. There's probably 20 major websites where all the posting happens. And yes, we have access to those, but it is happening through like central ones, whereas it sounds like the printing press was happening in a much more decentralized way. Like there was not every, sure, not everyone owned a printing press, but they, they were printing presses scattered throughout the countries and they were all responsible for printing different kinds of articles, topics, essays, perspectives, artwork. So from that standpoint, the funnel of communication wasn't happening through like the same channels that the channels were distributed, even though today more people can post. Yeah, yeah. The, the reason why the printing press worked was because it wasn't four main printers that would have been in the that would have been like having four main scriptoria. Like the reason why the printing press worked is because it was much more decentralized that you literally you could machine a press and create it and go in the back room of a shop and be off to the races with like not a tremendous amount of capital. Like the best modern analogy is like running a node, basically, not even a hardcore like tech node, even like a, a no code node. A node. Yeah, it costs you a few hundred bucks and you have to figure something out, but it's not as if you have to be into it. And that's why. So when this new information is coming out, which says, hey, the authority figure is illegitimate and there's an alternative you know, society you can create, um, they would have stamped that out. And they tried. They tried to hit, you know, depending upon how, <laughs> how far you want to go into it. It was centralized when it started out. They squashed some of those folks down because the tech was decentralized. Other people popped up, you know, a longer tail of it in a distribution curve, and it proved super resilient. And so then the authorities had to say, hey, we can't stop this. Like, we could always stop you know, monks uh, writing manuscripts. We could stop it if it were a few printing presses. We could outlaw it even in a couple cities and work with the city authorities and the governments and blah, blah, blah. But we've tried that and that doesn't work because the technology is so decentralized, we can't stamp it out. So now what do we do? We're faced with a choice. Do we let it run or do we participate in the same, you know, media and thereby legitimize the the action on it? And they did that, which ultimately proved to to be their downfall. And then one other thing you said, which is really really interesting. You might not be writing, you might not even be literate, but these printing presses, like they were, they were formed not just with one person in a shop, they were formed like through these networks. It was like Luther and his buddies, and here's an artist, and here's the small biz guy, and he's doing the printing, the other guys. So there were like these networks forming around the creation of like, listen, if it sounds familiar, like around the creation of like ideas and images. Most of them, if you look at the printed material, like you sort through the data, you'd say most of it is memes, basically. These networks are forming. You might not be able to code or to print, but you can be an artist and sketch this out, or you can do some of the dissemination. And what was really interesting was the they tended to tie the ownership to those networks. And so you'd be printing, it was much more decentralized, but they were also better at capturing the value of what they created through that like alternative like thought structure. I would argue not only is our current internet much more centralized, but we're we're horrible at capturing the value from that, right? And so like most of the value goes in total addressable market of some fang stock. Um, and so part of the decentralized nature is like technical, but part of it is the the value accrual. Like in that sense, 
even if they don't cut your cord, like they're functioning like medieval lords. They'll let you keep talking and like through magic, through like alchemaic, like hocus pocus, they'll use an algorithm to shape what you see versus what you don't see to create behavior in you. That's like better hegemony than like any medieval like regime could have ever come up with. Or they'll let you keep talking and they'll just harvest the fruits of your interaction, like you're a peasant out in the fields. Um, so yeah, I'd say we're very medieval technically to your point, but also even kind of value accrual. And like medieval chump you, like way back then who didn't realize your permission, like so too, we don't even we don't even think about it. We're like, wait, what? Is that is that true? Like I think we're just on the cusp of seeing this in Web3 is creating your own smart, like owning your own smart contract. So you talk about these printing presses, like you literally had to build the printing press to print the thing you wanted to say. And that's why, you know, it couldn't be that that one press couldn't be all over Europe, because I guess everyone would have to reproduce it. So you created your press, you printed your book, and then you, you literally went and sold that book, whereas other people had their own print going, they were selling their own things. So they were capturing that value. And now, low and no code applications are very big in web two world, like being able to stand up a website simply. And from a lot of conversations I'm having with like builders in the space, a lot of people are thinking about how do we give power to creators so they own their own smart contract instead of just being able to list through OpenSea and their smart contract, you should own yours. And if if that gets to the point where it's, you know, click a couple buttons and plug and play. And then all of a sudden we're all going to start owning our own contracts. And, and then furthermore, like owning our own data and publishings that takes that ownership level to just really the, I don't even it an exponential level than where we are today. Yeah. 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 No, that's, I mean, I think we're definitely, we're like in the, even in the micro, the little tiny TikTok, the epicycle, like we've seen this with web one and web two. And like now we're we're building the protocols and now we're getting in the middleware and now we're like, you could you could talk about, you know, different things on different layer ones and then you're seeing layer twos and you're seeing like no code and you're seeing like, you know, translational, like we're, we're getting very close to the UI UX there and thing, in terms of things that are being built. But the, the interesting thing about it was people would do that for value to, to make a living at it, sure. But they'd also do it, they'd run around with a sheet because the ideas were radical because it, it was like a, a, an indirect way of, of, of creating value. It was changing their world. The sheet, they might distribute it, they might run around with it even at personal risk, not just for economic value because they said, this is the, this is the world I want to create. This is the way it should be. I have an opportunity to do other things here and change my stars. And so you had people doing it for economics. And again, it wasn't a spectrum. It was layers, economic creation for sure, but also like philosophical and like ideological reasons they were running around. And like those networks by participating in it allowed people to do it, even if they weren't coding or printing, they might be doing art, they might be doing dissemination, what we'd call biz dev or community management today. And all of a sudden that printing press with like value capture in it and people participating for the world that they could create something like magic, they hadn't seen it before, and like there's a plausible world that they could actually instantiate through the technology working together as community, which had like a layer of self sovereignty on it. They participated and like actually, actually, actually did that. So that was a that was absolutely unbelievable in terms of you know not just value captured directly through the material, but also saying hey, this image represents that I can do something else. I can leave my farm. I can participate in this other community. We can sh work in resources here. We can avail ourselves to fundamentals. So it was very much like a very much like a real type of unlocking. And people participated in that. The technology wasn't just a form of identity and community construction. It was also a form of like business model creation. And so that's one other way to think about it. Like, yeah, you can you can keep like the first unfold is always better, faster, cheaper when you have a technological like leap. And then the second 
that can unfold is things you couldn't have otherwise imagined, right? And so that's like crypto as a business model to say, let me take my cost centers and like turn them into like revenue generation through participation as I'm taking TAM out and like redistributing it. That uh, that provides all sorts of opportunities. Everything you're saying is true, but like the the way I see this playing out is like much bigger, if that makes sense. That's like a lot to throw at you. You go down a rabbit hole here. Josh, everything that you've said is a lot to throw at me. This podcast, it's so good. I'm soaking it up. I hope everyone listening is soaking it up. Honestly, I've really just never been like a huge uh, history person. And everything you're like saying right now is making me think, oh shit, I need to go and do some history homework because if I was able to recognize some of these patterns and trends, then it would not only help inform some of my decisions on where I spend my time, but hey, it could also be help inform some of the financial decisions I make investing in this crypto space. <laughs> but the historians don't make it easy for you. It's like you can read, I mean, people read these books, like most of the best history is like where people are using it to make a point, right? And so in crypto, you have like sovereign individual, or maybe there's like adjacent things like fourth turning or blah, blah, blah. And like all that's true. And it's like really interesting, like history at its best, like don't worry about the names or the dates or the facts. Like that's an old institutional, like hegemonic construct. Like think of history as like a training, just like DeFi is like a playground for finance or NFTs, a playground for ownership or like art and identity construction. Think of history as like a playground for trying on like other glasses to look at things like differently to basically say, hey, are there patterns and how did they tend to work out last time? And then might we pursue certain courses or take certain steps to like remove unintended consequences this time? And so almost history, like at its highest form, is like a form of science fiction showing you possible worlds that have happened and possible worlds that like might happen. Yeah, no, very, very cool. I would do want to talk more about identity. Now, you talked about in your permissionless talk, like you said experience then was permission, and you kind of laid out a pyramid. That permission was across value. We've talked a lot about communications. Let's shift to talk more about some identity. So how do you see crypto impacting identity? And could you expand on these quotes a little bit? I have like two quotes I just want to share with the audience. Man, One you're such was, a good podcast host. You're like moving us through the whole, this is the most like structured thing I've ever, this is great. Sorry. I, don't mean to <laughs> I, I love it. I do my research. Uh, I Maybe I should get a PhD in podcasting. I'll have to pass this on to my boss too. So if you're listening, I am doing a good job. Create your POAP, your PhD POAP. Like, all right, sorry, keep going. Yeah, that's great. So, okay, you got a quote that said, crypto will vie for identity as a new nation state as imagined communities instantiated via currency and contracts. So like that was one I just want to share one more with you, and which is, I mean, you said it, AI is merely tech coming for your job. Crypto is identity and experience expanding who you are. So yeah, I mean, at, as someone who works at Unstoppable Domains, I'm super interested in identity and reputation and, and see that as really one of the, maybe the use case that will onboard the world to crypto. Um, and you just want your perspective on how you see all these things we're talking about and permission and how identity could evolve given like the current crypto technology landscape we have now. Mm. All right. So there's a bunch of different ways. we And like identity, I see like a form or an alt, the other side of the coin is like privacy, your ability to control your identity and to instantiate it in different layers and different ways you want to. So like, let me let me take this in like a, a few different ways. So like, so first of all, your permissioned identity, like I'm going to start with the most difficult. So just kind of hang with me. 
<laughs> so back to the historical thing. You have medieval hierarchy, and then you have unwinding with the Renaissance, and you have it building back up slowly. And like here we are, medieval you, and like now we're on the cusp of this Renaissance, and we're starting to see the same tools and the same like you know volatility and the same interactions. And it it reads and writes very similarly to what we saw at the last cycle, um, just at a much at a much greater scale. Um, the thing about it was that like medieval you didn't know they were permissioned. Like the head, the hierarchical structures were so effective at what they did, they were able to kind of like show you a window, call it a like cultural algorithm, if you will, that it didn't occur to you. And like if we pulled on the same threads, I'd say, hey, value, you think you control your value. You don't, you don't control how much your money is worth. You don't even know how much wor less worth it is every year. Is it 5%, 15%? You think you can spend your money. You can't spend your money. Like your your stock is a medieval IOU. It can be pulled at any time. Like a credit card can choose not to process payment like they have to me, like because they don't like content going to a crypto conference or something. Communication, we talked about that. They can cut the cord. They can let you keep talking. They can only show you a specific type of reality that's most profitable for them and like not others. The way that you would get out of that, like this identity is like, call it, it's like tied ontology to epistemology. It basically means like who you are and what you're able to do is like inextricably linked to like what you know and what you're able to see and understand. Like who you are is a function of like what you understand is truth to get super esoteric. So the point is, when you say that, that kind of goes back to you saying like, in the medieval times, you were a farmer because your dad was a farmer because your grandpa was a farmer. And so you have these lenses of what life is like. And so that's what that's what you see. Yeah, so that's so good. Like, true, you're lacking the technical ability to get out of being a farmer. You don't have the finance or but also you don't have the idea right it wouldn't have occurred to you it'd be like you talking to yourself you know 20 years ago and saying hey why don't you get into crypto join a dow do some fractional ownership it's like you don't have the protocols but even those words would have been gibberish to you just like they are to like people getting into it and so you couldn't have understood that and so that's like that's part of it like your identity so that's like on one level like crypto is like unlocking who you are is like the idea is that it shows you that hey you are permissioned it's these historical lenses you can put on and say oh wow i really am permissioned in this way i didn't know that I was like kept in this like prison I couldn't like I wasn't aware of and there are these other things that never occurred to me that allow me to make other choices and not just like self-actualization but literally make more money have more self-sovereignty to do what I want to do uh, have social connections with other people like all these things like are open to me I hadn't like even considered that before that's one function the other function is like uh, what you're talking about just pure identity control like instead of having my identity reside on a piece of paper my diploma or my social security card I have it reside online well right now it's like controlled by like medieval like lords basically that controlled identity versus me actually controlling it why do I want that so I'm not like part of their ecosystem I can literally leave I'm not an indentured farmer where I'm stuck on the farm. I can leave and go somewhere else. But also I can choose to persist or to instancy. I can choose to represent myself in different ways at different levels of disclosure in different contexts. So just like the, the spectrum of like totally KYC versus totally anon is like a false construct, just like every other historical spectrum. I may want to be anon here. I may want to have uh, KYC here. Like the tools of being able to like think of something else as my identity other than what I am, crypto. The technical tools to be able to Stancy that in different contexts, crypto. And then you start getting into like really interesting things too. Like what happened at the last Renaissance was there were there were factions, there was a political landscape. And most political landscapes are like economic versus social, right? And so just like today, you'd have like a fiscal conservative liberal fiscally, social conservative liberal, and like those things might not really 
match up. I might be fiscally conservative and socially live. It might not really blah, blah, blah. And that was the same way in the Middle Ages. And then with this idea of a new possibility of new community construction, like identity participating in that, I don't just have an X and Y axis. I have a Z axis. All of a sudden, it's like, wait, 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 wait. I'm part of this group that's fiscally conservative and socially liberal. I'm part of this group, this other group that has these same axes. So it like, it literally split and balkanized, like, and all of a sudden enemy of my enemy was a uh, friend and it got just crazy. It like deconstructed the political landscape. So that's one layer to it. And that's kind of what happened like with us as we went through like nation state construction and like, you know, our recent memory, just like the internet is post Bretton Woods, where he basically said, hey, we'll solve geopolitical order if like you hop on board economically, like behind the scenes. And so first world, second world, third world isn't like poor rich, it's us, them and everybody undecided. And so like, Crypto at its core, like the political theorists, like the PhDs in political theory or history of politics will say, what is a nation? A nation, like quote someone like, you know, Benedict, to quote like the, the political theorists, they'll say, a nation is a, an imagined community. These are literally the names of political theory books, right? Uh, a consensual community. Um, and usually that's instantiated, that's made real in the IRL by currency, money, and by contract, property rights, right? And so that's that's not my definition. That's like classic, you know, political science definitions. And if you look at crypto, you say, wait a second, uh, imagine consensual community, everybody getting together, and you have a currency, and you have contracts now with these NFT things. That sounds an awful like lot like a new version of like uh, government, basically, right? Which is what nation state was a new version of government before we didn't have nation states. Then with these technologies, they used uh, they created like a different form of government. So. I think crypto isn't just coming for like fiat or for currency that's like far too small. Crypto is actually like replacing those same poli-sci sociological functions of what a nation state did. So it's a much more existential threat for, for nation states more than just currency. Like currency is a function of identity. Like where I choose to like say I want to spend my time IRL or synthetic is where I choose to spend my money in the nature of the currency I have, crypto or fiat, is where I choose to communicate like through medieval overlords on the internet digitally or through handwritten letters or through Web3 where I actually control it. And the same thing with contracts. And so that's where it gets like really crazy. Then you could ask the next question, say, wait a second, like how does the IRL layer on the synthetic? And like historically, yeah, you have periods of chaos after this disillusionment and you have countries like jockeying and repositioning and people come out of nowhere and they dominate for the next 500 years. Like Medici were nobody's like Hicks in the south of France. One generation, they're running the throne of France and like the papal seat because they're early adopters. Little little uh, city states and geographies come out of nowhere. And so you have that XY access in our con particular context, uh, post Bretton Woods, like changing the nature of it. Like the hot take is I don't think the Z access is going to be crypto versus non-crypto. I think it's going to be what type of crypto you have, centralized versus anon. And I don't even think that's going to be like a particular like hermetically sealed bucket. I think it's going to be do you allow anything else on top of that? Um, which really gets into the success of the Renaissance last time was this idea of like pluralism, not just representative democracy, but multiple layers, technical systems and communities, not just coexisting, but generatively coexisting. Um, and so that might be something we, we want to look into going into the next few years post-regulatory environment. That's a long answer, but you asked, oh yeah, one other thing too. I forgot, like the big picture is like, these movements always start with like redoing money because that's the most value. So you start there. And then it moves to redoing identity, which is art and DAO and NFT. And then it moves to redoing work. Like, so it's kind of DAO and corporation was the last thing that happened. And so it'll be a new form of that. And then education for propagation at scale. And then into like, into call it like synthetic worlds, like which for, th for them were print. They hadn't seen, medieval, you hadn't seen this before, or you could suspend disbelief when you 
read a book or now watch a movie or look at the internet that was opening up these like new horizons in ways that they couldn't have envisioned. And so I very much see that fifth bucket, how it all plays out with like the metaverse actually mutually reinforcing in real life as crypto's new business model lets you turn cost centers into revenue generation. And so that's how I think it all kind of works out over time. If it, it's not a playbook, but if it kind of rhymes like it has the last few times. You asked a big question, so I had to give you, had to give you all the pieces. These are all big questions. And so that you just worked through that five parts and I do have in front of me. I mean, it was finance tokens, culture, NFTs, work, DAOs, education, social tokens, and then the in real life metaverse. And that's not like we, it's not like we figure out the tokens, then we move to NFTs and we move to DAOs. These are all being worked on concurrently. Right. And coming back to identity a little bit, like we we're working on identity in the form of NFTs. And do you see like do you see people attaching their identity to an NFT that they own because it, it gives you ownership, right? So it gives you like permission. And then we're working on adding like reputation layers to that NFT. So that starts adding, I mean, that's probably adding a, a social element to it. It gives you access to potentially IRL or metaverse things. It sounds like you do see us having like these identities associated with NFTs and because they give you full ownership, it gives you access, it gives you permission. And basically all the things we've talked about throughout this pod. And it's just figuring out the intricacies of how we work that out and what value those have over. I mean, that's that's really to CBD and something we're working on now, right? Yeah, that's such a good point. Those buckets aren't like, it's not like building a Toyota step one or a Le or Legos, right? It's like they tend to like cumulatively work in waves. And so when you have like a distributed currency, now all of a sudden you can like move to like identity and coordination. And so like we, we talk about these things like we're, we're, we're physicians and carving them up, right? But like we're like Victorians and we're like, oh, here's a mansion. This is my parlor for listening and this is my like parlor for eating and all these, but, but like that's just like, that's just because we're victims of our own circumstances. Like we we have this bucketed up because our currency, our value is not co-located with our identity, right? Like outside of some social signaling, like Web2 ripped that apart, right? Or like, or a construction. So like, yeah, I see like when you have the currency and you can tie that to an image and that image may be you and you may control that and you may control the things connected to it. Social graph, ENS, da, 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 da. And now what does that do? Well, that allows me these social connections, but these social connections aren't just like cultural connections. They also might be like, they might have different contracts or different types of links on it. Like that might be a different way to work by participating in this. I might be able to see my proof of experience or expertise or attendance associated with that. And so these are all like I'm building, it's almost like we're we're building the machines. Like an NFT like isn't the thing itself. It's like actually like the machine that lets you make the thing basically. And so like that thing is an image, but it represents like who you are, you can control it, social connections, money, not just directly around the object of sociality itself, but around like your participation in different networks. Maybe those networks have like a monetary function. You're doing fractional ownership in something, or maybe it's replacing a corporation and it's like equity as you guys work. And so like the image is representing now, not just a movement, but a movement that's tied to social coordination and to who you are, to what you've done, who you're connected to, value associated with it, and like what you choose to pursue all wrapped into a pixelated cat. Bringing it back to your printing press, just example we've been talking about, I'm almost picturing it now as you were talking that through. A year in crypto is like, we, a lot of people say it's like 10 years in real life or something because so much innovation is happening so quickly. So 
in the last year we got NFTs and those were like single things we owned and could control. They weren't, they weren't dynamic. They were pretty static though. With identity NFTs, it's almost like the printing press. Instead of printing a whole book, it just, it printed a blank book. You got it. And then everywhere you go, someone added a page to your book. And when you walk into a business, you don't have to give someone the book and have them flip through all the pages to find what they're looking for. They business just boom, because code automatically knows exactly what information they need to, to extract out of your, your personal book that you give them permission to. And so that's kind of what I think we're building with identity NFTs is this book, you're adding layers of information to it. You take that around everywhere you go and people can access what they need when you give them permission. And that whole time you're in control of your identity, your reputation, your money, your assets, your property rights. So very, very cool. You could even get crazy and like metaphysical on it. Like that's it. That's exactly it. We're talking about it in these in these words because we're talking we're, we're starting to say file mp3 straight we don't really know how to like we don't have like the nomenclature the words to like carve this up but like yeah if you have that thing and if that thing becomes fluid like we think of nft versus wallet versus blah 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 like you could think of it as entity and attributes like with associated image like with attributes of image and then you could say all these things if you have this particular type of image that means like you don't just have this social decoding or this financial decoding. Like I know a mutant punk or ape is worth this. I know a punk is worth this. Or maybe I have this thing in a DAO that meant I did these things to get into it. Or I have this POEP collection. But like if I have composability on it, it means I might be able to persist or to show an image that has attributes where I don't even have to machine read the code. I might be able to see the image. You can always say, hey, is it false fork? And there's ways like around that. It might even get like much more like metaphysical through technological like charge than than we're even thinking about right now yeah well josh this has been a fantastic conversation i think i could go on i think i only asked you like 10 percent of the questions that i had for today and we made it through an hour so these are these are really good questions yeah i appreciate it so i do want to wrap up asking you the same questions i asked to all our guests in our one two web three section so my first question to you is, who's an influential Web3 creator, entrepreneur, collector, writer, educator that's inspired or educated you? I mean, this is like, sounds like a cop out, but I mean, it's actually the community. It's like, I, I tend to use Twitter like I'd use an old MySpace or GeoCities page. It's like the anon that I've never heard of before that comes out of like the blue and starts like espousing this stuff, which like makes me rethink everything. And so like, that's kind of the magic of it. There's definitely like these icons you can look to and da 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 da. But like the, the most amazing thing on the Web3 side is seeing people come like outside these centralized systems with content that just like makes your eyes pop out of your head. So like, it'd probably be like an anon contributor honestly love it i haven't got community as the answer yet so i love that one what's your favorite nft whether you own it or don't the historian me would like to say punks but like i closer to my heart is like uh optimistic who has priority slaps and he had this chim chim seraphim it's uh so optimistic i'm optimistic and he has priority slaps which are like these male label kind of street art things they do on sharpies and a whole series of you know towers and this one is an angel a throne guardian like chim chim seraphim and like he's uh he's tied in with someone like jake bruckman at coin fund is his buddy and so kind of propagated i would never would have found him without it but he was he's very early so not super well known and not super hoity but i i really dig it yeah awesome and my last question for you which you're gonna love is in five years what's the craziest thing you think we'll be doing in the metaverse that we're just not thinking or talking about right now so on one hand like 
we're starting to see like layered like tethers, right? So like if you look at like Wilder World, you see zero IOs, underlying protocol lets you do stuff, or you see like some cross like universe composability, but like that's all within the metaverse. I think we're going to have like IRL. I think the metaverse is going to invade IRL and we're not even going to think about the difference of like where it's going to be hyper real in the sense, not just where we can't tell the difference between like the image and the real, but where like the real actually is like a function of the synthetic image. And so like, I think we're, we'll start using the metaverse and uh, like as, as a seamless transition with IRL where NFTs are operating as these like bi-directional doorways where you work in the metaverse and you enjoy the fruits IRL or you work IRL and you enjoy the fruits like in the metaverse. And so I think the the thing we're going to be doing is that the metaverse is actually going to be providing like IRL value and business models to your your Joe and Jane. That was kind of why we did this whole thing as an experiment. That wasn't metaverse, but to see, could you do it? And so everybody talks about synthetic, but I don't think we're floating off into like platonic forms. And like, I think it's actually going to be like mutually, or at least I hope it is mutually reinforcing with IRL. So it'll be working in IRL and the metaverse seamlessly. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, it's one of the reasons I still am holding on to my mutant ape NFT is like, I mean, NFT NYC is about to happen and they throw ape fest there and you have to own one of the, the apes to get into any of their activations. And if you NFT NYC last year, ape fest was like the was the talk of the week. And we'll see if it is this week, this year too. I, I kind of do expect it to be. So that mutually reinforcing metaverse, giving you that doorway into the in real life, kind of why I hold mine still. But uh, you know, after our talk, I don't know, I'm gonna have to consider it and maybe uh, to sell it out and pick up a punk. So we'll see. Yeah, and also, I mean, even for the smaller, if you think through like what, what that does, like taking that one step further, even to like really flesh it out. Like if I have cost centers today, if I have things I pay for, right? Like I listen to music, I pay for it. It's maybe nine bucks a month for Spotify for you. But if I have a coffee shop, I'm paying 30 K to BMI or whatever, right? Like, or if I have real estate and I'm working a place, or if I have, I have all the, or if I'm like getting charged for like payment, I have all these things that are cost centers. And like crypto allows me to turn those to revenue generators where I can open it up, not just fractional ownership, but run proof of coverage or proof of history or turn my payment to staking or or turn or participate, like listen to my music on audience. I'm earning like while I'm listening to my playlist. Now, all of a sudden it's generative. And the way I coordinate to really maximize value is through NFTs, through like the NFT is like a social coordination function of that. So it might be passes into re in real life things, but NFTs also in the, like as a doorway into the metaverse might actually allow me to do things financially in the real world I otherwise wouldn't have been able to do. It might be like just democratized ownership, like synthetically with impact IRL, like actually generating, which is like a little bit blue collar for most of the folks into it right now. But I think as we go from early adopters to people into it to the tech for people into it and the benefits, if I have an NFT and it gets me into a party, cool. Amen. If I have an NFT and it actually like means I have, it gets me into a space that I have fractional ownership in that space. That's interesting. If the NFT gives me fractional ownership in the space and fruits of like the profits of that business where I have ownership into the space. Now I'm, now I'm like in a very different world. So that's kind of the most crazy thing I see happening just to pull the thread a little further. Awesome. I love it. Well, Josh, we may have to bring you on for another episode to get through the rest of these questions. I could ask you so many more. There's part of me that wants to just ask now, but uh, we'll, we'll wrap this for today and, and leave something to come back to for the future. Where can people find you, connect with you and like follow the what you're putting out there? 
Probably Twitter is the best. I don't even know my Twitter handle, honestly. I It's something. Just search Crypto Renaissance and you'll find it. Your Twitter me. handle is at Joshua Rosenthal. Oh, hey, how about that? That's fantastic. That's actually easier than a... And like just the thought I'd leave people with, like this conversation or those videos, like you may be into it for the tech, but like your parents or someone you know, like may not just like be wired that way, right? They might not be wired to the art. They might not be wired to the economics or the trading. So saying, hey, if you're into crypto or even considering it, you're like part of this like much larger story, the story that's been like echoing through the ages. And like, this is probably wrong. That's like the nature of asymmetric. It means it probably won't work. But if it does, it like changes everything. And so like, it's an unbelievable opportunity. So like, and history will judge us how we respond to it, not just do we keep our nerve, but we actively participate to help others so like share it with someone who might not be into the spot trading or the coding or or you know the esoteric art but also like if you're here already like it's an unbelievable opportunity and like rarely i'm just telling you in history you never witness major transformations they just don't happen and if they ever do happen you don't know about it at the time much less can you participate in it and like you can do all of that here so like make the most of it you really think that this is one of the major transformations that we're going through on a global financial, cultural, like political scale, and we're living through it right now. And you're advising everybody to like get in, get involved. When you say don't lose your nerve, you mean like whether the price is down and people start hating on it, you stick around like that's what you're saying. I know it sounds just crazy, right? Like to literally say, it's like the height of arrogance to say like, no, we're in a time that's going to be much better than the Renaissance. But if you if you look at technological progress over the past 100 years or 50 years, you say, wow, we have done a number of things and they're they're hyperbolic. They're not just one and one is two, but they're one and one is like 500. So it's going it's going crazy, right? What have we lacked during that growth? We've lacked the ownership as a partic- as like as a dynamic in that. And now we're going to have ownership as that continues to generate. And that literally isn't just ownership, but it's also like idea exchange and identity. So like, if you believe those things, like I know it sounds like madness, but there's there's no other way to look at it. Not just as a crypto partner, just like as a historian. And so like, yeah, when I say don't you lose your nerve, like the people at the Renaissance, like if you ask them, they thought their world was ending. They literally thought every layer of their society was crumbling. They didn't see a new world emerging. And like the question is, well, first of all, they were right. Like every layer of their world was crumbling. The question was, was that just the end and the end? Or was it like a rebirth into something new they couldn't have otherwise imagined? And like this rhymes very, very well with what we've seen before. And so don't lose your nerve. Yeah, price action, but also people like flipping around. And like the beauty of crypto is you can participate in it even without spending money, right? Like, of course you can. I'm listening. I'm paying a Web2 service. Maybe I'll listen on a Web3 service. Oh, I'm earning their token for listening to it. Like, that's crazy. Like, so when I say don't lose your nerve, like actively explore it. Worst case, you've met a bunch of crazies and you've learned something new and like you've you've thought differently about a world that could be. Best case, it's like the Medici, like, bam, who knows? There was like some areas I wanted to get into around like a lot of the things we're seeing in society around trust in government and inequality and some of like these systemic issues. And I would say a lot of people do feel like their world is crumbling around them. And and right now it's hard to explain to people and maybe partially because I don't have the answers or the vision yet how crypto is answers to all that. But I do think once you start owning assets, owning property rights and being able to have these levels of permission at at the human level versus whatever permission you get from like the web two world or or the government and 
you start to find answers to some of these problems that give access and equality to more people. So if you take nothing else from this podcast, just remember medieval is a pyramid, right? And like that means like 90% of the value is controlled by 10% of the population and 99 by 1%, right? And like their world, they weren't even so aware of it, but they just kind of had a feeling in the pit of their stomach that this wasn't great. And it's kind of, they saw all the effects rather than like the disease, right? They saw, they saw all the symptoms. They're like, wow, I have student loan debt. I can't get into this stuff. And like my, like all the stuff that made you feel not good. And like rightfully so the, the core issue in that world was like a few controlling a massive amount, right? And that's always been the case, but not like the aggregation we saw last time. And like economically, like however you carve up right now, we're very, very similar in terms of in terms of like this total addressable market is like something to think about. So like if my web two, I'm designed to maximize that, right? But you, the participant, don't have access to that. So that means we have perverse incentives. That means they're making money at my expense and I can't do anything about it. And so crypto, if nothing else, unwinds not just that technological possibility, but unwinds that business model and allows you to participate in it. And then just like medieval, like farmer you, you wouldn't have known about that, right? Well, well, now you might through Web3 and through some of the things you're doing. So like your line of question is like very, very much in track on that. Yeah. Well, beautiful. Thank you, everybody, for listening to the Unstoppable podcast. This was a fantastic episode with Joshua Rosenthal. Please, if you're listening on Spotify or Apple, drop a subscribe. If you're on YouTube, subscribe as well. Throw this video a like. It helps us reach more crypto-curious native people. With that, I'll see you next Wednesday and in the metaverse. Peace out. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. If something we said today resonated with you, please leave us a review, subscribe, and share this with your friends. And remember, this conversation doesn't have to end here. Tweet us your questions, thoughts, and ideas to Unstoppable Web. I look forward to hearing from you, and thank you so much for listening.